1: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the State of Love and Trust. It's a Pearl Jam podcast. And I'm one of your two hosts, Jason Carapesi. And alongside me, as always, is Paul Ghillyary. Paul, it's a wonderful day here in Los Angeles. It is not a thousand degrees it is has, as it was for the last couple of weeks, which means the closet that I'm in is not also a thousand degrees. It's lovely.
2: It's so nice to have you out of the oven. Thank you. And into the frying pan, my friend. Oh, man. <laughs>
1: um, a big thank you to everyone listening, especially our patrons. We love you. And uh, we have just a couple of days. In fact, well, tomorrow, as you're listening to this, we have our first q Q&A, our first hangout via Zoom with our patrons. We're very excited. You can still get on the wire if you want. Um, so uh, head over to the link in our bio if you're interested in joining that. If not, no worries. You can always
2: feed the algorithm by rating reviewing and subscribing to this podcast on your platform of choice
1: this feels so organized now (laughs) just just rail this into people's heads at this point we know exactly i'm sorry We, we just have to get the housekeeping out of the way housekeeping out of the way yeah so i we've mentioned it a couple of times over the last few weeks um you know hey when there's a new pearl jam book out we we go and get that book and then we read it and um, when we're really lucky, we get to talk to the person who wrote that book. And right now, that is happening. We're doing the interview, Paul. And with us is the author of every song, every album, Pearl Jam, Ben L. Connor, live from Canberra. <laughs> hey.
0: Happy to
3: have you.
1: How are you? And how is the, how is the next day? <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh, yeah. it's cold here. So you might be headed for a cold snap. Might be coming your way. <laughs> might, might be coming. Our way.
2: It, it, it is wild, actually, when we do uh, these these segments and we have guests from different hemispheres mm. on the show it, uh, for, for us to be staring down the barrel of, you know. 10 o'clock at night, and uh, and and it's. I see sunlight behind you, my friend. <laughs> yes,
3: yes, it's it's mid-afternoon. Well, the, the weirdest thing, I mean, as an Australian, is we watch all your American movies and stuff, and it's always Christmas time. You're out in the snow, sweating <laughs> through snowballs, and we're down at the beach getting sunburned or fighting off bushfires. <laughs> or fighting <laughs> off
1: literally any of the wildlife in your country because I swear everything that's alive, <laughs> and that human is trying to kill the humans there, right? Yeah.
2: Oh,
3: especially the drop bears. You've got to watch out for them. Well, we,
2: we, we, we ha- well, I mean, it was a penal colony at one point. So <laughs> I, I, let's, let's be honest. Like, they, they, they're basically saying, just trying to yeah. <laughs> root out the are uh, unwanted. The British, are you saying term? the English
1: just <laughs> dropped in deadly things all over the continent?
3: <laughs> no, no. They brought the convicts in and the idea was they would go out there and make us fight. The, the fauna so that, Ooh, yeah, that love would, it. you would clear the landscape for them you know kill off all the drop bears and the tasmanian devil the tasmanian tiger and stuff like that yeah the brown recluse <laughs> <My> <laughs> no word. no no we couldn't kill all of them
1: i'll show you scares me but also <laughs> it fascinates me and i do want to go um well let's sure. get into it you are this is your first book right yes indeed your first book is about pearl jam why did you decide <laughs> to write a book at all
3: let alone pearl jam Um, well, it was interesting. Uh, well, I'll start from the beginning. It was that I've always loved, I love music and I've loved Pearl Jam for as long as I've pretty much been a music fan. Um, but, um, I've also just really loved like rock and roll criticism, like, um, unlike, unlike Pearl Jam, for instance, um, and a lot of people, I, I do like reading like interpretations of songs and interpretations of bands, careers, and, uh, I love all that sort of stuff. And, Uh, I I sort of collect books that go through artists song by song. There's like a series, hang on, I'll show you. I've got a couple here. There was this series that was published back in like the nineties that were these little CD sized uh, books. I don't know
1: if people know at home, but this is an
3: audio only format. They can't. No, I know, I know. I'm just showing you guys. I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. Yeah. But it's not, and they sort of go, when I was like 11 or 12, they had these on sale in the supermarket and I would just sort of read through them while I was looking through, I was waiting around. and then, so I just love that, that kind of sort, sort of story. I love goat, like um, this really meticulous kind of looking at a band's career. And so they, the Sonic Bond uh, group, they, they started publishing these. They started publishing these and they were doing like mainly like, like prog rock bands, you know, like, like Yes and King Crimson and Hawkwind and that. Um, but then I would notice that they would have ones on uh, alternative artists, like there was a Tori Amos one, and a U2 one and so I said well what's a band that I could do like what's a band that I have like all of their stuff and I've sort of been keeping up with their career and have like strong opinions about and so I just emailed uh I emailed Stephen the the publisher and I just sort of said hey here's and I did a sample um of like what a what an entry would look like and sent it in and he said yeah and that was basically it so it was just took a chance (laughs) want to write a book sure here you go amazing yeah pretty much yeah (laughs)
2: you flip through this thing and you're going song by song. And I'm just going to read a, a quick little did here. This is uh, your write-up on Soon Forget of Binaural here. Uh, I'm just going to read the, the last line you got here. The song's a cute character sketch of a man whose materialistic priorities undermine his happiness. It's the kind of quirky social commentary that Ray Davies made a whole career out of. I, I just, I marvel at, and, you, and I, I wonder if this kind of stems from this love of music criticism that you have this ability that you have to kind of reference other songs within the catalog and other songs from during before. And and in some cases, even after the particular song Mm -hmm. that you are creating commentary for. And I was curious, it's kind of a two part question. Number one, um, how deep of a fan of music in general are you? And Mm -hmm. number two, how did that help you analyze Pearl Jam's music for this particular book?
3: Okay. Um, well, Dancy, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to, like, rank how big a fan you are compared to other people. Um, I, I am, like, a serious music collector, but it's not like I collect, like, rare things or, like, you know, special vinyl editions. I just love, like, collecting music in general. Um, and I'm always trying to look for, like, You know, because I I read a lot of rock criticism and rock history and stuff. So, that we talk, like, I just read a book that was about the history of garage rock and it was talking about all these 60s bands. I thought, oh, I have to keep an eye out for those. So, I will go to like, you know, secondhand record fairs. And um, we have a big thing in Canberra called the Lifeline Book Fair, which is just this charity stall. And they just get like this warehouse and it's filled with books and records and CDs and games. And so, I just went there last weekend and I picked up just anything that looked interesting, basically. I was like, oh, two Stevie Nicks solo CDs. Haven't really heard those, you know. Um, Oh, okay, Tom Petty, grab that. And um, and then I just sort of like just um, absorb them. So I I would sort of say that I'm someone who has like a lot of breadth of like music fandom. Like I I love listening to as wide a range of music as I can. And then there are certain artists where I will get like everything they have. Like I want to get like at least a copy of everything they have. Um, And then there are other artists where I'm sort of like, you know what, I want to get like at least like you know, what's like the, um, the one Bon Iver CD I should have, or like, what's the sort of one Wilco CD I have? And then, then then I like, oh, what? you know, and gradually you go to enough secondhand places, you'll start seeing like the same artists all the time. And you think, oh, I'll pick that up and just accumulate. So I probably you have like actual
1: CDs then.
3: Yeah. 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 They're, I, how I big just, is that last... library? Because your breath is wild. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, this is the thing. I um last year during, we had a lockdown. We had like a COVID lockdown. And while in between Wait, what's a lockdown? I don't I don't know what that is. I'm <laughs> totally were... kidding. <laughs> God, thank God I was a heart attack. <laughs> well, yeah, since there was this thing Have called COVID and under... stuff. <laughs> yeah. No, no, but we we had one for work. So I was like teaching from home, like doing the lessons online. And and in between that, I was just putting my CDs into these big CD wallets. Mm. Um, so basically anything that didn't have like a, a collectible booklet or something I was putting in these CD wallets. And so I was adding them up and it's, yeah, it is, it's like thousands of CDs. Um, way too many for any normal human, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. So no, so that's the thing. So I would just have like, um, uh, I just, it's sort of like, you know, with streaming, like you, you, you got, you and I We we were all born in the pre-streaming era. You know what mm. I mean? Like, yep. and I, I still have this attachment to like, if I want to really absorb an album, if I want to really like, like get into it and absorb it and think about it, I've got to actually own it. Like streaming it, if I stream it, I'm like, I'll listen to it, but it doesn't have the same feeling that it's like entering my mind and becoming like something I think about. Do you know what I mean? I you and Paul both. Yeah. I looked up, you know, sort of, they sent a style guide out and they sort of, um, they had some samples and stuff. And I, and I looked at the biographies of the other people and they were like sort of experienced, it's from Britain, it's a British publisher. And a lot of them were, like, experienced rock critics who'd written for, like, uh, NME and Mojo Magazine and Uncut and such. And I was, like, looking at their stuff. And a lot of it's very, like, uh, technical. Do you know what I mean? Like, they'll talk about, like, the modal structure of the song and the shifting keys and such. And I'm not – that's, like, not an area that I, you know, to my, to my you know, chagrin that I never really learned an in instrument. So I don't really know that stuff. So I thought, what could I, what could I do with my book? What could I do with Pearl Jam? That, that I could offer because, you know, instead of just basically describing like the Wikipedia entry for each song, what could I do? So my thought was, well, I am a, I'm a sociology teacher. So I should be, you know, and I know I loved reading about like rock history and growing up in the nineties, especially cause like, we can talk about this later, I guess, but I sort of missed the boat on Pearl Jam to begin with. I only started getting into Pearl Jam and, and grunge in general and alt rock in general in the late nineties when it was kind of fading away. And so I was always really fascinated when I'd read articles and they would talk about how, like, you know, it used to all just be like hair metal and, you know, sort of like misogynistic pop and stuff. And then grunge came along and overturned this whole paradigm. And it, I really like was interested in that narrative. And so a lot of the books I had would talk about that. And I thought, well, that's what I could really talk about in this book. I can talk about how Pearl Jam were part of this kind of wave of alternative rock that really did sort of change up how the music industry did things. But then, of course, like, I lived through the whole end of the nineties with Napster and the collapse of the music industry and uh, hip hop and pop and everything kind of taking over the scene. And so that was, that was what I thought. So, so to um, uh, that's what you were saying when you read out that, that thing about soon forget, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about how, um, like all the, all the reading I've done, all the other music I've listened to and the sort of social context and the sort of context of like, you know, when Pearl Jam writing, they they do talk about their influences and they do sort of follow on from people they, they admire. So I thought, well, that's, that's what I can try and do. So I try and connect those dots a bit. So let's, let's speak about
1: a, a specific song. And this specific song Go. is Paul's favorite song, Black. And yes. you wrote in regards to this song, that we're listening in on Vetter's primal scream therapy. And I love that phrasing. Would you argue that this mm-hmm. was the very first of many instances of this primal scream therapy?
3: Oh, for Pearl Jam, uh, probably. Yeah. Um, I think you sort of have that element, especially, especially in the mid nineties, you know, vitology era, it really sounds like Eddie's got a lot of stuff to get off his chest, mm-hmm. you know? Um, uh, but you have to, like, I think, where I got that idea was that was, as I understand it, that was John Lennon's, uh, what he, that was what drove him with Plastic Ono Band um, in 1970. That was like he actually did the Primal Scream Therapy and that was what led to songs like Mother and God and stuff where he was literally just venting all of his pent-up mm. stuff. And so I was, that's what I was kind of thinking. I was thinking that like, I mean, you probably noticed in the book that I sort of try to say, well, you know, Pearl Jam are continuing this tradition of like yeah. classic rock. Um, you know, that as much as they were a part of their scene and their era, they really were this part of this tradition. And so you have that, you have bands like, like well, like John Lennon, Plastic Ono Band, and um, uh, who's the other one I'm thinking of? I guess, you know, even some of like the sort of heavier Lindsay Buckingham stuff of Fleetwood Mac, you know, where they're sort of venting their relationship frustrations in each other. And of course, a lot of punk rock, you know what I mean? Like, you know, Minor sure. Threats and Black Flag, all those guys. So there is like this tradition of that. And yeah, I think Black is the first. And I think that's one of the reasons Black is so great is because it's got this real great classic rock structure with this slow build and this big epic guitar solo and this really lush sound. But it really sounds like Eddie is like getting, getting it all out, like letting it out. And it's not, very, it's not, put, it's not a put on, it's not a uh, pose or anything. And I think that's what made that really cool, like really great song.
2: So one more on 10 here. Mm -hmm. And you're right up for Garden. Mm. You mentioned that the garden is perhaps like a a secret place inside someone where that person is disconnected from the world. Eddie wants Mm -hmm. to break in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I think it's a really interesting take on the song. It it definitely aligns with, I think, what a lot of people find relatable about the Mm -hmm. track. Mm -hmm. Uh, Interestingly enough, this is a song that kind of lived in the the, the, the space between, you know what I mean? There was an ambiguity mm-hmm. to the song. Yeah. Uh, that said, yeah. though, recently in Europe on the tour, Ed actually admitted to the audience that the Garden of Stone is actually a cemetery. So I'm, I'm curious... Huh. I know, right? So, breaking yeah. news for free.
3: <laughs> I'm curious. will <laughs> have to have, We'll book. have to pull we'll all the books. <laughs> yeah, we'll yeah. have to do a whole new draft, start from scratch. <laughs> well, the,
2: I mean, this, this should be a fun exercise for you then. I'm wondering how your hmm. interpretation of the song maybe changes, if at all, after hearing Ed reveal something
3: like that. Yeah, that's really interesting because this is a thing that I had to reckon with as I was writing the book with a couple of other songs because so like, like I said, I'm a big rock fan, but I'm a music fan in general. But what I find I tend to do is, like, make an emotional connection to a song before I've even really thought about what it means. You know? So, like, Garden is probably my – it's not my favourite off 10 because, I mean, it's got so many great songs, but it's probably – that's, what, like, my favourite, like, deep cut, I guess, off 10 is um, – and I just really connected with the kind of, like, gothic feel of it, you know, mm-hmm. the sort of arpeggio that it starts with, the sort of swooping bass, and – It just has this really like you know sort of I don't know it just I I, it sort of soundtracks to my mind like when you say it's in a cemetery that fits what I had in my mind you know it fits like a a sort of a um, sort of a spooky but romantic kind of situation Um, yeah like it it just fits that and then when I was and when I was reading about what the actual song was I was like oh it kind of fits what I was getting at but not quite you know like I thought he was singing about Like sort of breaking down someone's defences, you know what I mean? Like Garden of Stone, whereas a garden, you know, like sort of Stone Walls or Mm -hmm. something He's sort of trying to break down the walls and get inside their garden. Um, The cemetery thing, though, it just sort of fits the vibe that I thought regardless. But that was the thing that happened with a bunch of other songs. Like, for instance, Daughter, I'd always thought Daughter was about like a child who'd been divorced, whose parents had divorced. And so, the child was like, don't call me daughter, you're not my mum, basically. You know what I mean? Like, I thought that was what it was about. And then when I did more reading and realised that there's this whole other element about, like, um, sort of mental illness and disability Mm -hmm. and such, I thought, ah. And it it sort of, you know, like, it did change how I thought of the song, but I sort of formed that emotional bond with what I interpreted it to be first. So, I didn't really lose that, per se.
2: That's a good segue into verses, isn't it, Jason? Yes.
3: <laughs> yep. Uh,
1: you know, you said something when introducing Versus, because you kind of do like these little, like three to four paragraph introductions mm-hmm. of the album, and then you go song by song. Um, and this really stuck out to me. And it's something we've said uh, in not so direct terms before in this show, is that mm-hmm. while 10 defines Pearl Jam to many, many fans, mm-hmm. Versus is the band defining themselves and you called yeah. it the definitive album. I, mm. Please expand this, because I, lo- I love this premise.
3: <laughs> oh, okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad you think that, because like, I was worried that was a controversial statement, you know, because 10 is so big. It's like the one, if there is like a list of best albums ever, that's the one that gets on it. But yeah, no, I think Versus is like, well, I think Versus is their definitive album for a couple of reasons. Like you said, it's the one where they get to define themselves. Like they were now like a, they were, they were, mainly going with material they were writing for the album as opposed to stuff they'd done for like Mother Love Bone and other, you know, and Temple of the Dog and stuff. Um, You know, Eddie was now like firmly part of the band and, of course, like the figurehead of the band, so they kind of had to reckon with that and he had to reckon with that. Um, And uh, But I also think just musically, like it's it's where the band is like sort of saying... You know this is the aftermath of the whole grunge wave of the sort of you know better being on the cover of time magazine and everybody sort of thinking like oh the seattle sound and such and so i really think this is pearl Jam saying well like we're not going to fit into a box we're going to do like a funk track and we're going to do like this sort of like tribal world music track but also especially this is the thing i think is most important is like the punk influences coming through you know because like if you if, if they'd only released 10 and you played 10 to somebody and they didn't know anything about Pearl Jam. They could, you could say, well, 10 is like, it's, it's like an 80s album. You know, it's like a sort of a, it's not really meant to be an insult. It's going to come, come across like an insult. But you could sort of say 10 is part of the same thing as like Jane's Addiction, you know, like a Based sort of smart- Based on the production under- or the songwriting. Based on the- pro- Based on the production, but also, well, the songwriting is much more like, yeah, like you said, much more sort of primal, much more kind of introverted. But the sort of, the sort of sound, the sort of big epic sound, the big reverb, the sort of um, the way the songs build slow and they get bigger and have big guitar solos, you know, you can say, well, it's part of like the old metal sort of scene. And so Versus is for, is for me saying, well, we're going to go back and we're going to go back to like Green River and before that, and we're going to go back to like the bands that kind of you know the sort of garage rock sort of thing, like we're just going to bash out some songs, and so you get songs like "Go," and "Animal," and "Bleed," and "And Leash," which are just like really like full on. Like you know, people like you know, if you thought that like "Why Go" or "Or Once" were were hard, then we're just going to go really hard, you know. And so I think that's it. I think that's why versus is, is is it's not just the sort of the fact that they were able to to make the album, um, as like a cohesive band with like what do we want to say, but also that there was sort of setting out their stall of like, we can do more than just this sound, like this sound that's become famous. We can do other things and we're not going to be bound by any kind of genre restrictions.
2: You know, Ben, you mentioned Go. Uh, you talked about Daughter. Uh, and and mm. I think we see this play out in other songs in the catalog. There's a predilection, I think, when it comes to Eddie singing from the perspective of vulnerable women. Mm, mm. And uh, you mentioned Kurt Cobain and Nirvana's Polly as a subsequent example, mm. but that that particular track felt more voyeuristic than what Ed typically tries to do. So mm. I'm curious, why do you think Ed has been so successful at writing lyrics from that perspective?
3: Yeah, it's really fascinating, isn't it? It's, it's, it's not something that a lot of like male rock stars can do or they can do without being patronizing. Um, yeah, uh, I think like Eddie's, like, you know, family background himself, I think that sort of plays into it. Um, you know, I don't want, you know, it's, I tried to avoid like psychoanalyzing. Like, that's the thing, thing with this book. Like, it, it's, I was not, I was trying, I did sort of a l- lyrical analysis, but I tried not to sort of be like, this is what the band were thinking when they wrote this mm. because you never really know. But I guess, um, I don't know. I mean, it could be a combination of things. Uh, it could be a combination of, you know, his, his way he was raised, sort of like the sort of culture he came from. Um, like, I don't know, maybe something in the surfing culture where it's sort of got this spiritual, spiritualist element would kind of be like empathetic. Um, it could also be just like a, a reaction against things, like something I noted, um, and uh, I just read a book that was actually like an oral history of, of 80s hair metal that was really interesting. Um, and it was sort of going through all of these bands. And it just like the sort, of, the sort of just casual like misogyny of the 80s of, be- of people singing like, you know, like Motley Crue, Girls, 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 that whole thing, I can sort of maybe even see like it was a conscious effort to be like we're going to write like different sorts of stories, like tell different stories, not tell the same kind of story. Um, and like with the-, with the Nirvana one, with the comparison to Polly, I was sort of thinking like, you, you do have bands that will write about, or not just bands, but like authors and filmmakers. And they'll tell stories about like women who've been attacked or brutalized or, or assaulted and stuff. Um, but they will, they will sort of be like, well, we want to show like what made the man, the monster, mm. you know, or, or like what drove him to this. And so you can't help. But it. so it's not like the intention is not to be voyeuristic, but you're basically still putting like the man at the center of the woman's story, you know, like, you know, they make movies about like, you know, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer or, or Ted Bundy or whatever. And they always like, what made him so mysterious and fascinating and, and compelling. And, um, you know, so I think there was like maybe an effort to just consciously bypass that, you know, just bypass that whole thing and talk about like women, um, you know, uh, and, and, and girls. It is interesting that it's like, it is like young girls as well. Like, like the, the um, maybe because they were underserved, they're an underserved audience in rock music. Um,
2: as are insects, which is why we have bugs.
3: Yes, that's right. Which I we, did. We will not go fans, there, man. So that
2: was, yeah, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, we might just leave that one. But, but I mean, for for those it, listening, Ben yeah. is not a fan. Okay. I made a
1: note. I made a note that we should talk about bugs, but <laughs> I'm not gonna have time. I'm not gonna go on that path. But uh, that's a fun entry, guys. Go ahead, and read that one. <laughs> uh,
3: yeah. Um, no, no. Yeah. It's it's so anyway. To, to just to, to to wrap that up, I think it. I think it just might be that just, he has a talent for it. I read
1: somewhere that, um, Kurt's, um, I guess for lack of a better term, feminism rubbed off on Eddie a lot, uh, and made him Ah. more, more aware of things. Um, and I think he, from what it, from what I read and what we see, obviously it got ramped up, ramped up. And then after the, uh, the, uh, the killing of the, um, abortion clinic doctor in Florida, they had that, they had that, um, that show down there in Pensacola voters for choice 95 yada 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 so uh well let's jump ahead to Mm -hmm. vitalogy yep you assert that vitalogy not no code Mm -hmm. was the album to separate the hardcore fans from the casuals yes how essential was this approach to keeping the band a band in your opinion Mm.
3: oh so that's interesting um yeah well reading up on reading up on Vitalogy because reading up on that before I wrote it that was where you was it was the most sort of contentious and fraught and such um and it sort of feels like listening to Vitalogy see has never been my favorite album you know like it's sort of really well regarded and has like a lot of the favorite songs like Corduroy and 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 Not for You and Better Man, obviously, but it's, it's never been my favourite. And so I've always kind of, whenever I've listened to it, I'm always like, if I put this on, listen to it from beginning to end, will I, will I love it now? Do you know what I mean? Like, will I turn around at it and put it in my top tier? And it never really works. And I think it, you know, not that it's not a great album. you know, it's, just never, it's never sort of hit me on that level. And I think it is because it really does seem to me that, like, the band are kind of, if they'd stopped there, like if they had actually broken up with Vitalogy, I think they'd be remembered a bit more, with a bit more, like, skepticism and bitterness. Do you know what I mean? Because it's yeah. a fairly bitter kind of confrontational album. You know, they really are, like, venting a lot of, like, their anger at the world and at their own fame and the, at this whole thing. And I think if they'd finished with that, it would have seemed like well, they, that was all they had driving. Like, they just let mm-hmm. it all out like an exorcism and they didn't have anything left in the tank. And then because they made No Code and Yields, which are, like, in retrospect, like, they're, they're, No Code especially, like, they're weird. But they've kind of warm, like they're warm-hearted kind of albums in a way. They've got like songs which don't have bitterness or don't have a sort of uh, Well Ed makes fun thing. of himself and off he goes. Yeah, exactly. Which I, I mean, again, that's yeah. Like you were talking about 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 like interpretations. I always assumed Off He Goes was about Kirk Cobain. I always assumed- really? that was Yeah, yeah. I always assume well, not not Kirk Cobain per se, but about like that kind of figure, like a guy who like off he goes, not, not meaning like committing suicide, but like, he's, he's just letting it go. Like he's trying to leave the scene, leave the, leave, hmm. you know, no, not, not,
2: not to jump ahead here, but I'm curious cause it's a great segue to this comes then goes. Yes. Did you feel that there was a connection to Cornell with that song? I, th- I think that seems to be the, uh, the general consensus as far as the fan base is, is concerned, but your, your write-up seemed to, I don't want to say deviate away from that, but you, you, you had a, a bit different of an interpretation.
3: Now, see, that's really interesting. I, I kind of tried to stay away. Like I said, I, I, I didn't find any explicit references. You know, there's like with Gigaton, there's a lot of like current stuff. They haven't done like the retrospectives where they go back and say, so what was this all about? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So, um, But I can absolutely see that. I can absolutely see what you're saying. That absolutely makes a lot of sense. Um, and because the song song kind of sounds now that I'm thinking about it, uh, comes and goes kind of sounds like Seasons, Cornell's solo track off the single soundtrack you know, it has that kind of stripped down Led Zeppelin 3 kind of vibe, which is really interesting Um, I can sort of absolutely see why the fans like when I I was doing uh, Gigaton, when I was researching it, I was like well, I'm going to find all these interviews and they're going to talk, it's all going to be about climate change it's all going to be about Trump and they're going to reference like Chris Cornell or like three or four songs. And then I just, cu- I just couldn't find as many references for it. And it was like, huh. So either they're being very oblique about it or it's just they're, they're, not, they're not verbalizing this. They're going to save that for later. Well, you know what that means though? That means that, that the lyrics that he wrote
1: are, for lack of a better term, coded enough to be applicable in mm-hmm. a lot of mm-hmm. ways.
0: Yeah, because, which is something I've... Yeah, sorry. I was just
1: going to say, I, because I went into it thinking when i when, the bit of the scuttlebutt on the on the forums was that it was about chris and so i went in thinking okay this is gonna be about uh, chris yeah, yeah. and so that was my that, that was a um a, i guess a prejudice that i had going into the song mm-hmm. and so I, all the lines fit up uh, um fit with what i was kind of thinking it'd be about and so uh, it kind of yeah. lined up perfectly for me but if you don't go in knowing that or you you yeah, you don't, go, you don't go in knowing that.
3: Maybe it comes a different way. And it's curious to see how you yeah, came yeah. about. Yeah. Well, to go back to Off He Goes, like, I think that's the thing. Like I said, I came to Pearl Jam a little bit later. Like, um, I, I mentioned in the book that I got into when I heard uh, Who You Are on the radio. And then I bought… Uh, no Code, and I read up a bit on the band because I was sort of really disconnected from from mainstream radio and such at the time. So I, I read up on the band, and that got me into reading about like all of the other bands connected with them and Nirvana. And of course, I knew that Kurt Cobain had died, and I knew that he was significant and such. And so I just kind of assumed, oh, that must be it. Like, this was the album they made after Kurt Cobain died. And so this was obviously a song about regret and like a a sort of semi-mythical figure. Mm. It just fit. It just fit. And so that was, like you said, I just came into it with that mindset already. And so then just the interpretation kind of latched on in my brain. And it took a long time for me to sort of think about it differently. Yeah.
2: Speaking of differently, let's jump to Riot Act for a minute. Sure, sure. In in your write-up on I Am Mine, you mentioned that you feel like Ed is being a bit combative when he sings I know I was born and I know that I'll die I'm curious what you find Ooh. combative about that
3: can do you mind if I just check my own entry yeah yes. of of course. Course. Check, check, entry. check what I wrote <laughs>
0: um
1: I imagine a lot of this is a blur because you you wrote oh, it all right. and it's edited and then yeah. you chip it off and you're like
0: yeah
3: well that's the thing I mean I sort of what I did was if I can just have a little bit of a tangent, I sort of went. I just basically listened to every song, sort of roughly in order that I cover them in the book, and wrote down like my first impressions. Wrote down like what I what I thought, and um, then I went back, and that's when I went back and like then I read through articles and books and interviews and all the sort of stuff I could find. And what I was finding often was my initial first impression was very much against what the no actual artist was saying. Yeah. So I had to correct it. And and sometimes it was dead on. Sometimes it was completely off. Sometimes there was just no information out there. So I just was like, well, this song could be about anything. So I'll I'll just say what what comes to mind, what makes me think of. I think what I, yeah, this is the thing. So I I remember this now. What I was like, I was comparing this to Given to Fly. That's what my thought was. Because I Am Mine, it was very much like a, I thought that it was comparable to Given to Fly in the sense that like as a lead single from the album, it's much more sort of audience friendly, got a bit of a sing-along feel. Um, I could definitely imagine, like, it's it sounded much more like something that would welcome uh, radio playlisters, unlike Nothing As It Seems, which just seemed to be, like, designed to sort of be ob- as obtuse a, a as possible. Pink Floyd
2: dirge or something like that.
3: <laughs> Basically, yeah, which is a compliment for me because I love Pink Floyd. But, um, but yes, so, so that's what I was thinking. I was thinking, like, it sounded more combative compared to Given to Fly, where Given to Fly is this sort of big build and release and this big kind of, like, epic, land, you know, wide landscape sort of feel, whereas I Am Mine has this kind of sea shanty feel. And, and just lines, of, I know what I'm born and I'll know that I'll die is just like not a line you think to hear in like such a friendly sounding song. So, it's, yeah, it seems true. like, it, you know, it's, it's a bit of a, it's not like, I wouldn't say it's like nihilistic, but it's more like. It's blunt. Um, it's blunt. That's It's the, just, word. That's it's exactly the black it. and white of life. You're, you're yeah. born, you die. Exactly. That's exactly the way to put it. Yeah, and so that's that was that was my thinking. But sort of com- in, in comparison to other other sort of us. Uh, oh yeah, and when he says like I only own my mind and such, you know, it's 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 a bit more insular, you know, compared to some mm. of the other sort of big Pearl Jam songs. It's much more sort of like it is it is a reflective on himself, which is one of the things that makes Pearl Jam great. Is you know they write songs about where they express their own thoughts, their own fears, their own kind of like um uh things they're dealing with and then people relate to it but they don't relate to it because it's so generic they don't relate to it because they're writing like a sort of really bland kind of like you know i don't know really bland sentiment of like isn't it sad they write something like oh, you know we i know that i'm bored and i know that i'll die and people are like yeah that's that's a terrifying thought but it is something you got to confront you know speaking of dying yes let's,
1: let's jump to uh, backspacer we kind of jumped all over Yield though, which is my favorite
2: album. You know, well, well Ben, every, everything that comes out of your mouth is like a, a, a giant runway for a segment. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair just, enough, fair enough, you're, fair you're, enough. You're, you're serving them up for us. <laughs>
3: no worries, it, man. You got to keep the podcast moving. It's Now,
1: I'm going to focus on the last song of that record yep. and called The End, appropriately. Yes. You talk glowingly about it. I think we all agree. We all like the song. Um, mm-hmm. However, you wrote that you believe it is about ed missing his family went away on tour i think it's an interesting angle and i want to know how how do you reconcile that with a line like a sickness in my bones which many including myself would insist that that, um it's about maybe the subject being inflicted with a terminal disease singing to their spouse Mm.
3: how do you how do you um how do you uh, think about those two ideas I guess the idea for me with that line, I mean, no interpretation is like ever hundred percent dead sure. on. I, I that, guess my is so interpreta- specific is my, is my point. Is yeah. Yeah. No, no, line. that's right. It is. It is such a specific line. I, I, I would sort of interpret that metaphorically as part of like the sort of tradition of Ed singing about like kind of how he, he doesn't like the sickness is kind of dealing with fame and dealing with being on tour and such like that. If that makes sense. Like it's, he's, it's, as I was as I was writing the book you know it's just you, you sort of notice how many songs he kind of writes which are metaphors for like yeah and not like not like it's not like turn the page by Bob Seger it's not like being on the road sucks it's more just like I'm doing this thing and I'm out here performing and I'm writing music and I'm putting myself out there and I'm opening myself up to all kinds of slings and arrows and such from people um why am I doing this it's because it's it's I love it it's because I, I need to do it it's almost like a compulsion and such you know so I th- that was kind of, I guess, how I interpreted that it was like that was driving him. Um, yeah, so that's, and like being in your bones, because if something's in your bones, it's like really a part of you, like it's not like, it's not like, um, you know, like when you say I feel it in my bones, you know, I feel it deep down inside. So that was kind of my interpretation of that. that was I like, like that. I, I never would, I mean, I'm, I, I, I will hand up
1: say that oftentimes I take things at face value too much and don't find the metaphors for the the second and third layers that that there are, Mm. you could be a hundred percent right with that. And I would never have thought of that. And I think it's a fantastic, uh, (laughs) either primary or secondary way of looking at it. I think it's really interesting that now I'm going to be thinking
3: about the song differently now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's pretty cool because I mean, it's, it's like having options. You know what I mean? Like I, (laughs) I'm very much a kind of person who will be like, if I'm sitting down to do work or if I'm going for a bike ride, or if I'm working out or reading, I will like, what is a song that captures the feeling I want at the moment? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so that's why it's good to have different interpretations of things. You should be like, if, so, you know, the end could be a song for exactly like what you're describing, a song about like, um, you know, uh, expressing this kind of like, uh, what's, what, what's the word? Like the sickness that you were talking about, you know? I mean, I, like, I thought maybe it was something somebody that had cancer and was going away and yeah 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 that absolutely makes sense it's it's a song like called the end and it's such a it's such a sweet song so it sounds like exactly the kind of song you would want to write for the situation you're describing Mm. um and then to have another interpretation means you could be playing it for like a wedding or going away thing or something who knows that happens a lot
1: with a lot of Pearl Jam songs I think you mentioned Just Mm. Breathe um Future Days was my first
3: dance song oh wow at my wedding (laughs) so there you go awesome that's really cool so that's a big choice you know what i mean like that's a big you know people ask like what's your horoscope or something or like you know what's what, what what's your what's your myers-briggs thing that's what people should ask like what would be your first dance song at a wedding yeah. and stuff
2: yeah <laughs> <laughs> so while we're on the subject of interpretation mm-hmm. and i i don't mean to go back to 10 because i felt like we put it's all good but we put a bow on that one but release is a song that at least in the documentary that we saw um that cam and crow put together that there Mm -hmm. seemed to be a heavy emphasis on ed's relationship with his father Mm -hmm. and how that song was a manifestation of that internal struggle to reconcile that that relationship Mm -hmm. um your write-up seems to suggest a lot more ambiguity though more more questions you know, yeah. said, while Vetter could not have known that this album would make him a superstar, the context adds an element to irony to lines like, I'll ride the wave where it takes me. Who is Vetter speaking to when he roars, release me? Is it society, his family, himself? It could be all of them or no one in particular. So I'm mm. curious, it, you, you don't seem to be in line with the thinking that the song is somehow connected to his relationship with, or the absence of his relationship with his father. I'm wondering yeah. if, if you came across something that may no. have...
3: um Well, what's, what's funny is, like, I, I, I don't think I came across anything that specifically said it was about his father, but I also think I, don't act- I didn't actually look that deeply into specific interpretations for that song because I really did think I, I sort of had it pegged as, this, as being more ambiguous. Um, not because... Like, I think with release, what I was approaching it was, was that it's the final song on the album, but it's, it's like an opening song for their concerts, do you know what I mean? Like, it's like a big opening song and it's like, it's really unusual for a band to open a concert with a song like release, if you think about it, you know? I mean, obviously the, the, the phrase release sounds like, you know, you're releasing the concert, like it's, it's happening. But then you think about just how many bands would come on the stage and it's just like bam into their like biggest, loudest hit to get everybody up jumping around immediately and instead releases this like really slow sort of uh, soulful sort of thing, a lot of like wordless vocals. And I just was sort of thinking, so it's, to get out there and play a song like that, opening up your concert and doing it so much, like it's like one of their top is it, you guys are the concert experts. Um, it's like one of their top three or four songs or something, isn't it? It's like right 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 opening a show or, or just in general, but opening the show, it's got actually right hasn't
1: been played as much as you
3: think. Oh, really? It's, it's ah, one of the, one of the three least played off the album. Okay. So I would just completely wrong then. Well, there you go <laughs> again. Pop the book, start a sketch. Um, <laughs> Well, it's just, I, I guess it just sort of still struck me. That was the song that they opened when I did see them. So I've, I've only seen them live one time, which is, you know, to my eternal shame, but um, that was the song they opened with. And it was just such an interesting thing. It was just a, such an interesting vibe for a concert like that. And so it's always struck with me. And I think that's just the angle I was approaching it at. Like it, it, it's such a, it's such a, um, a universal sentiment, you know, release me like to end on that note, especially as the climax to their first album. So it'd be the climax of their first album where they've already sort of set out, They've sung about, like, school violence and child abuse and medical abuse and, like, you know, but and, and classic rock staples of, like, longing for loved ones and, you know, uh, you know, aggression and venting. And then to end on this note, this sort of almost hymn-like note of Release Me, um, it sort of sounds like, you know, so they've already released all of this stuff and they've still got stuff to give at the very end. And then to open their concerts with that, is really fascinating because it's it's like that they're they're singing i don't know because like I, I suppose that question i asked like that's the question i was asking you know is, is it the fans that they want the fans to release them from from expectations is they want to is it that they want to be released from their own expectations want to be released from the past i guess what you're saying if he, so if he, is the idea that he's singing to his father like being released from like the guilt of the of his childhood experiences or his remote connection to his father and such—is that the idea? If that interpretation, well, I mean, it? as
2: far as openers are concerned, I mean it—it it is a top ten opener release. It, it's mm. been played over 140 times as an opener, so it—it it, it right. is. I mean, you're not wrong in, in your in your perception that it it's a prolific in the right, way that right. it's de- it's deployed. I think the the question just had more to do with the the general assumption or the narrative mm. that everybody seems to subscribe to as it that song relates to his father, but, um, yeah. Yeah. So, and, so, and, and so and I'm talking
3: to play I guess.
2: Got it. And, what and I, I like think about it, you yeah, know, oh. I, I, I like the different takes. I think part, part of it was just with, with the Cam and Crow documentary where you, you have in Pearl Jam 20, that, that conversation about his father. And then you have that performance mm. of Ed. Yeah. I guess was it? 2006. I think is when he was performing that, uh, that track, but, uh, mm. I just thought that it it was almost like Crow seemed to want to push that narrative as well, which, which I, I get thought you. lent some degree of authenticity to it. But uh, yeah. again, I mean, you know, I, I, I think any artist would argue that no matter what the song is about to him or her a, a, as a songwriter, when, when it gets out there into the ether, whatever the song means to a person for, mm. for all intents and purposes, it, it kind of grows organically and takes on its own life, you know? And so yeah, it it can mean more than one thing without question.
1: I mean, look at look at so many other songs in the in the catalog and how they have evolved through years of playing. We talk about the evolution of Alive, for example. Now it's a mm. celebratory song, We're All Alive. Mm. Um, where obviously it did not mean that when it's original yeah. writing. And I wonder if the playing it as an opening song has more to do with them finding some way to change it in the live setting to be that way for the fan Mm. even if it was written i get you from ed's point of view about the father he never knew um Mm. you know it's no i get you but but that's the cool thing right so like especially if you're coming into the band later and Mm. you maybe just didn't even ever bother to like try and look up um You know, all the Wikipedia threads or all the forum chats about what every single song is about. You just go in completely fresh, no idea. The fact that you can take that away, I love that because it 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 helps you um flesh the song out in maybe another Mm. way. And it changes a lot of experience in the song too. So you know, when you when you watch Pearl Jam um Let's Play Two, and Dr. John Evans is crying when they play release because he lost his father to I forget what it was. Um, he found that connection, but somebody else might might have. You know, they were in a really um, bad relationship with something else, and they finally mm, got mm. released from it. Maybe they take it that way. I think yeah, it's I great getcha. that they they can that a song can be taken in so many different ways, even if it's "quote unquote"
3: obvious of what it really is about "quote unquote." You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, this is. I I, I think this is what's really interesting is I think that's it's two things. I think. What you're saying there is if you come into the song with, like, thinking this has got to have, like, an interpretation, like, like, and like I was sort of saying, I tend not to do that with music. Like, I don't think it's a bad thing to do. And obviously, you listen to some songs, like, well, this song is, like, you, you can't listen to, like, I don't know, um, The Times They Are Changing by Bob Dylan and think, oh, this is very obscure. What's this about? No, it's <laughs> very obviously about what it's about. But I think with Pearl Jam is, like I said, I really connected with the sound and the vibe of the music a lot. And so then... I would have my own interpretation and then I just would be like, I don't really need to go and look, look up what this is actually about, you know? Um, but you couldn't help but learn about what some songs are about because everybody would talk about Alive and, what, and the difference, like you said, between how Alive was, in te- Alive was intended and how it was interpreted. That was always in all of the books and all of the write-ups about Pearl Jam back in the 90s. Um, so, yeah, so I, just, I guess I just didn't like go looking for that. And like you said, in the, in the documentary and such, um, it just it, – it's. It seemed to be making that connection, but I was like, well, that's their interpretation. Do you know what I mean? Like, that was the way they could do it. I also think what you said about how they, like, maybe they're changing how the fans, or like they're changing it to adjust how the fans interpret it. I think that's maybe when you're a band like Pearl Jam and you have an album that sells that much, and there are people who will just be like, play that song, play, play, you know, play the hits. Um, and it's played on the radio a lot, and that's and you have people showing you the stickman figure and uh, that they've got tattooed on them and all that. At some point, you've got to be like, I could either sort of just be correcting everybody, like I, everybody who comes to me and say, "No, no, you're wrong. This is what it's about." You know, you're, you're wrong about it, or you've just got to be like, like you said, you know, just let it go and say, "Well, it's become a different thing. It's become something that it's it's not just for me. It's not just for the fans. It's this sort of thing that connects us because we we're it's created something that's bigger than the meaning I intended. If that makes sense. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Yeah. So you you can kind of. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, so so, so if you were were Eddie, I think you'd have to be at some point, like I could either go mad trying to correct everybody or I've got to let it go. I've got to like release that, you know, that weight of of having to explain myself all the time Hmm. and go with it, you know? Well, we'll end on this.
1: Um, what was the greatest thing you learned about yourself and your fandom of this band throughout
3: the writing process? Okay, wow. We're going to get deep on the All last right. one. Yeah, okay. Just give me a second. I've got to think about this. This is heavier. I thought really you were going to listen to some of the, I thought you were going to ask me, like, what's my favorite project and song and stuff? That's in, that's in the book. They got to pay money for that. <laughs> That's true. Exactly. That's a really good point. Um, okay. Okay. What did I learn about myself and about the fandom? One thing I learned about the fandom, which was really interesting. Um, and like, I did look at like fan interpretations of songs, but I didn't really go deep into like forums and such, because I honestly didn't have a way to find them. Like it's, it's hard. You don't know where to look for forums. You type in stuff, you just get like Wikipedia and, and genius and song facts and stuff. Um, but I did join, I, I am a member of a Pearl Jam Facebook group and hanging and sort of talking, you know, not, not really talking with them, but hanging out there, joining in conversations, recommending other music and stuff like that. Um, there was a lot more defenders of binaural and Ride act than I thought there would be. And a lot of, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I came down pretty hard on them because they came out after I was a big Pearl Jam fan and I was kind of like, oh, man, you're letting it slip, you know what I mean? Like, you're, you're letting, you're, 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 seeding, you're seeding radio space to all these douchey new metal bands and stuff because <laughs> you're making this arty stuff. And now, you know, obviously in retrospect, like, I love a lot of that music and such. Um, and uh, apparently a lot of fans hate Backspacer, which I love. So that's like a real, I was shocked to discover that. Um, but I do think, yeah, just the, the, the sort of resilience of the fan base and the fact that the fan base has been willing to go with them through all of these like ups and downs and ins and outs and the sort of dedication people like I listened to on your show go into like 50, 60 concerts, um, oh, yeah. you know, tracking around like Grateful Dead. I mean that's obviously not even the real commitment. The surface <laughs> and stuff. Yeah. Um, oh that was okay. And this this was something I would learn not so much about myself, but about like how I think about music is I think it can't really be ignored how being in Australia really shapes how you think about international oh, bands. Yeah. Yeah. Just because, so Pearl Jam have always had a big Australian fan base, um, and I think Australia has always had, like, a real fondness for, like, meat and potatoes, rock and roll music, you know what I mean? Like bands that do concerts with drums, bass, guitar, you know, full-on singing, lots of fan interaction. You know, all of our the, the bands real like Daniel
2: real. John experience, you
3: know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the thing, you know, like, I don't know, like, there's Australian bands that, like, if you were asked, like, the average Aussie, sort of, like, what are some iconic Australian bands, well, I'd say, like, Deal you know, Fed, maybe. Yeah, oh, yeah, Crowded House, you know. I think they're underrated as an influence on Pearl Jam, actually. I did have a whole section in the book on that, shout. but I cut it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I cut it because it was just, like, I had to cut it down. Uh, but, like, oh, bands that you guys probably haven't heard of, like, Cold Chisel and uh, Hunters and Collectors and, um, Midnight Oil and stuff, who did, who did have a hit in the US, but they were much bigger here. And they were all like bands that like really mean it. Do you know what I mean? Like they, they are very sincere and they're very creative and they'll, have like, they'll, they'll all um, be really good at their instruments and want to show it off, but not in like a showboating, like mm. Joe Satriani kind of way. And I think Australians just really respond to that. Like they respond to bands who are just sincere about the whole package. Like they're sincere about how they play. They're sincere about their songwriting, about their messaging, about connecting with fans. And so that's why Australia's always been like really receptive to Pearl Jam and, um, and 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 other bands from that sort of scene and such. And it just really is pretty cool to sort of know that, yeah.
1: I think that's one of the reasons why we chose uh, Australia as our first fan roundtable. It, yeah. it just seems like there's just so much passion in that fan base and, and it's always there, even if Pearl Jam hasn't come for eight years,
3: you know. That was, yeah, that was the other thing. I, I knew I forgot to mention something. You know, the fact that we just don't get bands coming every day. Do you know what I mean? Like the, the fact that we just don't get bands, like for international tour. And even when they come here, they go to like Sydney, Melbourne, never Brisbane. Never Canberra. Yeah. Never Canberra. But I mean, like I can drive in. So like, it's like a three hour trip in. So I can drive in, stay overnight with my family and then come back. Um, but it's still a big
1: commitment. Well, Ben, uh, this has been a pleasure. And uh, listen, I have so many other questions that I wish I could get to, but uh, we'd be here for hours. And uh, Yeah, no worries. Yeah.
3: Like, um, one star on the podcast. This was too long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. When are the, when are the regular guys going to speak? Who's this loser from Australia talking to? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, this has been really great. Yeah. So the book,
1: every album, every song, Pearl Jam, it's out now. You can get it on Amazon if you'd like. That's where I knew it was coming out. Yeah. Uh, ben Alconer, sort of live from Canberra, Australia. Yeah, from in the future. That's right. In the future. <laughs> <laughs> future days,
2: Ben. Future yeah. days.
1: So you, exactly. Yeah. Thanks a lot, guys.
2: Yeah, it was a pleasure.
1: Thanks again to him for coming on and chatting about his book. And uh, let's move on then to our Lyric of the Week. of the Week this week comes from Riot Act. It's been a long time since I've heard this one live. and It doesn't really feel like it's a part of the zeitgeist anymore, but we got to hit it. That song is Bushligar. How
4: does he do it? How do they do it uncanny and immutable? This is such a happening tailpipe of a party. like sugar, the guests is so refined. Okay, Paul, going with the
1: first verse here the first words that we hear ed speak not necessarily sing what do you make of this uh,
2: i struggle with this song my friend <laughs> yeah. Yeah, i really do I, I i personally find it to be somewhat of uh i don't want to say it's poor execution but it 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 meanders a lot mm-hmm. it doesn't really seem to have a melody that it can settle on um I also feel as though the song itself is, I mean, you like to say it's very on the nose, which it is. Um, I just think that, you know, <laughs> what's going on by Marvin Gaye, like there, there are some wonderful songs out there, social commentary songs that, that really define an era. And I feel like Pearl Jam had an opportunity here to say something. And I feel that it comes across somewhat contrived and um I think the word "ben used was was petulant actually is the, yeah. the 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 delivery for this track. and so well, I don't know if I'd go quite that far i I, I see that there's a there's an argument to be made in support of that if one wants to, to look at it that way uh, but this 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 set of lyrics i mean the the born on third thinks he hit a triple line, I think yeah. is, is one of the only standout lines after this first verse to me I, everything else just feels. A little unfocused and it, it definitely doesn't doesn't really uh intrigue the imagination much if, if i go that far this first verse though i think does and, and if i didn't know the title of the song and this is all i got i think it would actually intrigue much better yeah, yeah. how does he do it how do they do it uncanny and immutable this is such a happening tailpipe of a party like sugar, the guests are so refined. Uh, some really fascinating wordplay happening here, mm-hmm. and and I think it's the strongest verse on that particular song, or in that song, I should say. Uh, we don't know who the he is at first. I mean, obviously, you look at the title, and it's it's beyond transparent. But Jim Carrey, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, how, but I like to how do they do it? Yes, you know, it, it it begs the question that there are larger works at play here, uncanny and immutable. Um, the immutable piece, I think, is is fascinating. It's like no, no matter how hard that you you wish you could you could mute and look, it flies in the face of what should be productive discourse. But the reality is, things just be have clearly been polarized long before the generation that we're currently living in. Um, this is such a happening tailpipe of a party. What do you make of that line? We'll get to that in a second. Uh, <laughs> this last line though, like sugar, the guests are so refined. You know, re- re- refined sugar at just as, as, as a process is uniquely different, I think, than, uh, than unrefined sugar for those who, who don't know. Do you know the difference? Well, they bleach it. Okay. Uh, so unrefined versus refined sugar. So it has refined has empty calories, okay? Has zero nutritional value. Okay? That's that that's refined sugar. Unrefined sugar retains all of sugar itself's natural ingredients. So there's some calcium, there's some iron, there's some magnesium. It is devoid of any value, unrefined sugar. <laughs> But and it's so good, Paul. I know, but the yeah, word refined, yeah, right? Yeah. You think about it in high society life, this idea of refined, right? Uh, like sugar, the guests are so refined. It, if that isn't like a backhand I mean it is perfect. it's perfect. I could I could say it might be one of the one of the, the highlight lines on the entire record. Oh yeah. And It doesn't get enough respect. And so this is not a song that I I, I enjoy listening to. I quite frankly don't. I don't think it's particularly a, a strong composition, but that first verse is uh, that is a happening party right there to me. I mean, there, there's it's very well written, um, like sugar. The guests are so refined, and you have to know that difference between unrefined and refined sugar, and it it just deconstructs the false pretense that envelopes this entire regime to Eddie at the time. And, uh, dare I say the entire party, because he says, how do they do it? Uncanny and immutable. Mm. Uh, or maybe she's just referring to the family in particular, either way. Um, it's a very, very poignant, very sharp and harsh, critical, uh, attack, quite frankly. Uh, it, it's, it's, <laughs> there's some legit character assassination happening in the song on a lot of levels. And so look, it, w- whether you agree with the sentiments or not, um, I just have lyrically for, for, from a poetic standpoint, some appreciation for the, for the opening lyrics and so.
1: Yeah. I mean, despite, despite what you may or may not think of the man.
2: Well, that's why I wanted to get away from that. It mm-hmm. was what I appreciate about the opening Salvo as it were, is that, that th- these lyrics you don't, if, even if you didn't know it was right. about Bush, I mean, it, it could be talking about high society. It could be talking about, you know, a whole host of different groups of people um there's just some nuance there so i i appreciated the opening i wish that the rest of the song had been able lyrically to deliver the way this does yeah. but quite frankly the music doesn't hold up either so it's it's sad to say but the highlight is literally the opening burst to me and then, then it just kind of goes downhill from there
1: musically speaking i think the uh
2: there are no highlights highlight highlights
1: Music, the, the chorus <laughs> is probably the
2: best part but that's
1: not saying a whole lot the bar isn't very yeah. high um yeah, the, I mean, you, you you hit a lot of it. Uh, there's a decent amount happening here in and, and these lines. And, and while it's a little too all-encompassing for me, I do like the imagery. Um, starting solely on Bush and then using the they, as you mentioned, to refer to basically everyone around him, the elite, uh, the elite that are in power at the time, all those born on third thinking they hit triples, to borrow a line from later in the song, I do really like the words "uncanny" and "immutable" to describe mm-hmm. this lot as well, because no matter how often the people in power pull seemingly illegal, if not just unethical and immoral stunts, we are somehow still surprised or taken aback. Even if we say, "I know that he's going to do that," you know, this this could all, by the way, all of this could apply beyond beyond George Bush. It could apply to anybody that you think is in power and is. Abusing their privilege and their power. Mm-hmm. Which is why this, this section is great, um, compared to everything else in the song. Um, and this is why I like this set of lyrics, because even though it's it's clearly about bush, you could apply it to so many other kinds of politicians, even even media members, really. Um, but that line there, you mentioned it a second ago, a happening tailpipe of a party. What a metaphor. What a metaphor to compare these people and what they do. To say the exhaust from a car. I've never heard or even thought of people in this way, but it's right on the money uh, for what's going on here. I love it. And to piggyback that lyric with what we are presented, everything these charlatans do is so calculated and so precise that it appears like it's all on the up and up, the perfect kind of crook, right? Uh, and to juxtapose that, uh, with the previous line, I think it's just really quite something. And it's a shame that for the most part, this song is just way, like I said, like you said, just way too on the nose in a similar way that I think seven o'clock can be. Although, in defense of seven o'clock, it's not as bad as this, um, which is saying something. Um, mm-hmm. I also really like that these lyrics lead off the song to start with uh, those two questions is key to me. It's like, right out of the gate, we're befuddled. Like what the fuck? How, how is this possible? How can this guy, how can these guys uh, do this and get away with it? Immediately. We know what, we know what's happening here. Um, it's only in when you get farther into the song and then you realize it's really narrowly focused on, on, on George W. Bush. Um, but this verse really sets the tone. Well, it's just too bad. The rest of the song doesn't live up to these lyrics, as you said. And I think not only is the juxtaposition of those last two lines so great, but when you factor in the the culinary aspect of <laughs> how little sugar does anything for you when it's refined, is just, yeah, the, the layers there of, of those two lines is just so good. Uh, and it really is a shame that uh, that's kind of where the fun ends and everything becomes really just obvious and kind of like, you know, he doesn't actually say... I don't think Bush's name at any point in the song.
2: No. Well, the title, I mean.
1: I mean, outside of that, whereas, you know, songs like uh, Quick Escape and 7 O'Clock, he he, he says right, Trump's yeah. name flat out. And yeah. both those times in those songs, Quick Escape I do love a lot, um, is a little cringy for me, which is why I don't know that, especially 7 O'Clock, that that'll be played much after this tour. Um, for those reasons, similarly to why Bush Leaguer hasn't seen a lot of days in 2007 remains to be seen if this continues those two yeah. those two gigaton songs but um we had to hit this song eventually mm-hmm. uh, and at least there was this to pull out of it you know when we did evacuation we were just like uh
0: this one <laughs> interlude, i guess I don't, I don't know but yeah
2: that's yeah. all she wrote my friends it's-
0: so
1: what do you what do you guys think i mean this is again been played 32 times um we're gonna get to the live cut in, in a second and uh it's the it's the it's the version you think it is uh, and there's what's interesting well you know what let's just get to it then because i, I it's, it's a great conversation We're i feel like i'm gonna have a better conversation about the about the live track than i <laughs> and the lyrics This <laughs> one. So let's just get right to the live cut of the week So live cut of the week. Um, like I mentioned before, 32, I think it's 32, 32 appearances in total. Doubt it's being played again. They started off at the show box um in 02. They played those two key arena shows, and then they did the, they started the Riot Act tour proper in February of 03. Brisbane, Sydney, Adelaide, Melbourne. They hit Japan a couple of times. Then they come to the States. They played Denver, they played Nashville, and then they played.
2: Nassau Coliseum, Long Island, April 30th, 2003, fresh off the announcement of the uh, Iraq war. I think uh, vibes, for whatever reason, for the war and uh, the president at the time anyway were pretty high. And uh, the reception to uh, the song was not really reflective of that. (laughs) So
1: here here it is going back to Uniondale, New York. April 30th, 2003.
4: Uncanny and immutable This is such a happening tailpipe of a party Like sugar, the guests are so refined Confidence man, but why so beleaguered? He's not a leader, he's a Texas leaguer. we are swinging for the fence, got lucky with a strike. They're drilling for fear, it keeps the job simple. Born on third, thinks he got a triple. Blackout always this way through the city. Blackout always this way the city like yeah. yeah. I always Columbus decanter Retrenchment And hoggishness The aristocrat choir sings What's the ruckus? The halves have not A fucking clue The immenseness of suffering And the odd negotiation of rarity With onion skin plausibility of life And a keyboard reaffirmation Jesus
0: way A blackout way This way, I'll be
4: out the nice suit for you, yeah. Oh yeah. You didn't like that one? I don't understand, maybe, maybe you like him because he's gonna give you a tax cut. Maybe you like him because he's a real guy that relates to you, because he's so down home. I'm with you, USA. I just think that all of us in this room should have a voice in how the USA is represented. And he didn't allow us our voice. That's all I'm saying. We love America. I'm standing up on a stage in front of a big crowd. I worked at a goddamn drugstore. I love America, right? This is good. This is open, honest debate. And that's what it should be. If we keep this back and forth, keep this back and forth, good things will happen. If you don't say anything, you don't know what'll happen. Because we are on the brink of forever. And if we don't participate on where this thing is going, when we're the number one superpower in the world, you want to have a part in it and make sure it's a good thing, yeah? Plus or minus be active. This is a good thing.
1: (laughs) This is the cut. It it is. You, when you, if you go back and listen to some of those Australian shows or the Japan shows, you listen to the song. It's like, okay, they're playing a live version of this, of one of their new songs. Nothing, no one's the wiser. It kind of is what it is. It's not great, but it is what it is. It's fine. Whatever. They get to the States though. And a buddy of mine, Uh, my buddy Wilson went to that show at the time I was in, we were both in college, but he was going to school in New York and I was going to school in Florida. So I wasn't able to go to that show. We would end up going to the the garden shows together, but over the summer, but he went to that show and I remember asking him, well, I'm hearing the scuttlebutt on the internet here is something happened. And he goes, yeah. um, Some of the crowd were not too happy that he was being critical and he was very." Very combative, and apparently, um, well, apparently he was watching from the floor. He goes, "The rest of the band, they looked like they felt very awkward." <laughs> and there's video. I mean, you can see it. Um, there's video on YouTube of this whole of this whole thing, Paul. I the,
2: mean, the, the, this uh, well, he called it a debate with the crowd, mm. an open, honest debate mm-hmm. is what, what he, he tells them. He says, "This is good. It's what it should be. If we keep this back and forth, good things will happen." Then of course they followed up with uh, the clashes. Know your rights, <laughs> yeah. And, and Neil Young's uh, Rockin' on the Free World." So uh,
1: <laughs> I think that well, uh, my all buddy that was saying, missing
2: was Springsteen's "Born in the USA." Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah, and they should have played that right after the crowd began chanting "USA" over and over again. Actually,
1: <laughs> that, that's that's exactly where you would expect McCready to like just drop <laughs> in a little, a little riff. You know, it was a weird time in America because the Iraq War was so new. That not everyone believed it was started under false pretenses. Not everyone did. Yeah. Um, and there's a natural instinct to be nationalistic. Uh, and, and that instinct and many Pearl Jam fans' skepticism, cynicism about our government kind of came to a head in Long Island. Um, if there ever was a clear moment of the most definitive live version of a song, certainly this is it because of this yeah. interaction. Um I mean, you look at that video again, and it's just, he's wearing the shiny silver sport jacket. He comes out. He's kind of dancing real cocky. PM, PM he impales the mask. The mask, mask. <laughs> yeah, he's impaling mean, the fucking mic stand. And he's he's he got to put the cigarette in its lips. He's pouring wine. Like, hope it was not expensive wine, but he's got the wine. He's pouring it down the mic stand. And I'm like, he—that that is as early 90s, just saucy Ed as we got in the last, in the second half of the of the, of the career yeah
2: he, he was feeling a bit feisty that night and, was, and look yeah. the, the reality is if you think about what the song's about to play it with that reaction if that did not inform and charge the performance i don't know what would I, like having a bunch of adoring fans basically screaming in unison like an echo chamber i don't think it's gonna better the performance of the song but lighting a fire under his ass by having everybody boo and chant USA, I think without a doubt, I think that definitely contributed to not egging him on per se, but making him feel like, uh, all right, I'm, 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 I'm going to bring it. I'm going to double down on my stance because that that's that's the debate. Right. So that to me, this is the cut. I agree with you. Well how,
1: how is it? How is it not? There's no way that you can have a performance that has the backdrop that Uniondale had yeah because it really it was a real time uh culture check for ed as he's performing the song
2: it's a time capsule moment for us as pearl jam fans too yeah um yeah let us know what you think
1: uh i'd be hard pressed to well i'd be surprised if any of you um had a different cut but you know what if you do i'd love to hear it um i got time you know what we do (laughs) Uh, that is the show, guys. We thank you very much um for listening. again, if you are a patron, we love you as well. and we uh, we appreciate you guys um spending time with us uh, tomorrow night uh, as this thing drops on uh, Wednesday the twenty first we'll hang out if we if you've already if this has already happened, then that was so much fun, right? You know, this is kind of like one of those true your adventures, whether you listen to it before or after the hangout. Um, couple news and notes in a couple of weeks. Another interview this time with an artist an artist You may know he may or may not make posters for Pearl Jam. Oh, Paul,
2: what do we have? Oh my God. Was that a cat that just came out of a bag? Oh my Uh-oh.
1: goodness. Well, be on the lookout for an interview with a certain artist in the next couple of weeks. Um, as we kind of move into the fall here, this beer, Paul is not a, uh, Anderson Valley, uh, Fall solstice. I don't, uh,
2: I don't know what boot they're... amber ale winter yeah. sol. There's no yeah. The, we, we we don't have the. Uh, are they not here yet? Uh, no, no. Well, they might. They might be coming out pretty soon. Here. I don't know. I, I, I'm enjoying the pumpkin ales right now. Yeah. So re- rest assured
1: that if you are in the Southern California area, there are no more pumpkin ales because Paul has visited every Bevmo in, in this area. <laughs> in no, Hall.
2: that's this winter solstice. I remember I brought like a giant you had like 40 box. of them I had like It was a ridiculous amount of Anderson Valley Winter Solstice Those and thought, are not The pumpkin ales I, I just dabble in you I know, legit, enjoy
1: I remember when you told me about that I, I legit went to Trader
2: Joe's And they had one
1: six pack class And yeah. I got it.
2: That was the
1: only one I saw the entire season
2: Yeah, exactly Paul They that tell you They fly off the shelves <laughs> Get it while it's up How'd we end up on this tangent? I don't know I don't know Because I'm drinking beer
1: Anyways um, Yes Yes Thank you, thank you, thank you again. We enjoyed the conversation after the fact. And uh, yeah, be on the lookout for that interview with a lovely artist who may or may not have the initials of BK. Okay, we'll see you next time. And until we do, you've been listening to The State of Love and
2: Trust.